guest at Pressure Points with your two favorite hosts. I'm D, and this is uh, definitely a regular host, Bear, hitting you with season hey. four, episode 38, The Doolittle Debacle. We've got special guest Bear here, and he's going to be telling some sweet World War II stories. AJ never existed. Find us on per- uh, Twitter and Instagram. You know the trick. Oh, welcome back, man. It has been a while. It's been too long. Yeah. Uh, and well, actually, yeah, you were you were here just last week, definitely. Um, <laughs> you've been the other recurring uh, always host. I don't know mm-hmm. of anybody else yep. that I've done this podcast with. So don't don't go looking in my backyard. AJ's <laughs> definitely not buried in a shallow grave back there. No, 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 no. no. Uh, well, I'll. I'll clear that part out. I'll figure out how to edit stuff. You're good. You didn't. You didn't incriminate yourself. Um, yeah, man. So what's what's been new? Uh, you graduated. Congratulations. Mhm. laude. Yeah. There you go. Surprising. I, I did not expect that. Good job, man. Yeah. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah, it's still working on trains. Still mm-hmm. digging that historical shit. Uh, you talked a little bit beforehand, and yeah. I mean, sounds like things are going well. Exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, what you got on the... What you got for me today? Uh, so, usually, you know, y'all do all this weird, abnormal stuff that's not really talked about. This one, not, you know, it it's relatively unknown, but most people in the military community know about it. Uh, okay. It played an important role in uh, World War II, and especially... Uh, World War II history. It's called the Doolittle Raid. Um, okay. And for me, the way I like to call it is it's basically America's middle finger. Um, uh, the whole thing started, of course, on uh, December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor decided to bomb the living crap out of our naval yards in Pearl Harbor. Duh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, yeah. so this is uh, one of... Is, is it like... When the U.S. very first got involved in the Pacific, I just said. Uh, this is our first win. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. Th- this is our first win, and in all honesty, I couldn't see any other country doing it because of how idiotic and <laughs> reckless and stupid it was, <laughs> such, and it still worked. Such an American approach to World War <laughs> II, but I mean, it was just kind of. I mean, that was kind of the expectation from from the yeah, Yanks I mean, at the time. The the amount of things that could have gone wrong are ach- astronomical, and it makes my brain hurt when I think about it. <laughs> from from the military powerhouse in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> God. So so basically, what happened was is Pearl Harbor gets bombed. Uh, we lose a big chunk of our Pacific fleet. Luckily, our the only thing that mattered was our aircraft carriers, and they were gone. Uh, they they survived, and almost immediately America was sitting down, going, "Okay, how can we give Japan a bloody nose?" They came over here, punched us in the gut. How can we hit them in the dick? Yeah, and really uh, and so the the idea really got uh, started catching ways when FDR introduced the idea of bombing japan's homeland uh, the main main islands of japan not any of their military bases thousands of miles away not in china but mainland japan oh, okay. and he introduced yeah and uh, he discussed this with the joint chief of staff on december 21st 1941 so like i said almost immediately after pearl harbor we were thinking about what we should do yeah uh, essentially just like immediate retaliation was was on the forefront of this was our knee-jerk reaction after going oh wow we some bad stuff just happened because after pearl harbor in the following weeks japan did a massive military push all over the pacific um taking lots of islands uh taking military bases that american uh america had and like I said, we were losing ground and morale from right off the get-go was low, and FDR was like, hey, look, if we can find some way to hit Japan at the home, 
that's going to be a morale booster for us and it will call out Japan because at the time um, uh, Emperor Hirohito and his generals had been saying our homeland is secure no one can get to us no one can hurt us we are protected and we have the power to ensure that never happens okay so this is a pacific dick measuring contest like i said (laughs) no other country would have thought of let's do what we're going to do and i mean Uh, and you'll (laughs) it's totally fair when when you think that like the u.s has been losing ground and to really kind of finalize that big push to take over the pacific of course japan would go for like the main pacific um like resource that the u.s has which was pearl harbor and hawaii you basically cut the snake off right at the head and it's like now they have so much further they have to worry about flying and japan just has the pacific at their at their expense at the fingertips yeah and uh, basically that's what happened is that um yamato who was the general who devised pearl harbor uh and he also didn't really like the idea um some sources say that you know if and he said if we attack this place we better make sure we destroy everything or they're going to come after us within a year and we're going to lose oh, okay um, so yamato he's like what we need to do is make them rebuilding our navy so costly that it would take them too long to get into the fight and by then we'll have the entire uh, pacific under iron fist and uh, like i said they missed our aircraft carriers because uh by some miraculous mishap they were out at sea at the time and oh, missed it completely okay. and hmm. so um this idea of bombing japan proper got tossed around for a few weeks until a uh, Navy captain by the name of Francis Lowe, who was the assistant chief of staff for anti-submarine warfare, saw a bunch of planes, uh, bombers actually, landing on an airfield. And on the, uh, on the landing strip itself, they had painted out the size of a, the length of an aircraft carrier uh-huh. just to see if they could do it. You know, uh, dick yeah. measuring contest of pilots and whatnot. And these are, and, so what what planes were they flying again? Was it B-52s, uh, right? B-25s, <laughs> Jesus. B-25s? Yeah, B-25 okay. Mitchells. And uh, actually, uh, there's pretty neat why they chose that in the first place, and I get into that. Uh, the so, B-52s were there. Uh, they were playing the songs. They were playing... You know, love shack and shit as people were oh, landing. That, some of the, that's historically some of the... accurate, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Jesus. And so he, he reports to the uh, Admiral Ernest King on uh, January 10th. So 20 days after FDR was talking about bombing mainland Japan. And um, basically what Francis Lowe reported is like, hey, I think we can land a bomber on an aircraft carrier or at least take it off Uh and it goes up the chain of command unreasonably fast and within a few weeks um the entire military is working together to figure out how how to bomb like it 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 cements itself as a plan and i mean so the the tactical advantage of taking off ships from the aircraft carrier is that you're saving so much in fuel and they can make these like round trips these like so quick round trips dump all so, of their bullets yeah, basically and, and uh, then the big risk is just land taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier which has very limited space right uh, yeah most of the aircraft carriers during war two had about um at maximum about 500 uh 500 feet or 500 yards oh. uh, of takeoff like uh, of usable strip Jesus. and so we had specially designed planes to take off and land on on aircraft carriers and we were thinking of using uh, army bombers not navy planes or anything like that which did not have the proper equipment that were already really big and no one thought we could actually do it. Oh, and yeah. so 
um, the army and the navy get together and they're like, okay, who's going to make this plan and who's going to train our pilots? And pretty much every single person writes down the same name, and that is a gentleman by the name of Doolittle. Okay. And unassuming name, but my God, is this man just an absolute legend. Like, even in... uh, His full name is Jimmy Doolittle. He was born in California in 1996, moved to Alaska when his father said, oh, the gold rush is happening, and grew up in a small, virtually lawless mining town where he, like, you know, he grew up in the rough and wild, and his family finally moved back to California where he entered high school. And then that's where he, when he saw his first airplane, he goes, I'm going to fly that thing. Okay, so he, he was kind of known as uh, like, oh, uh, like the daredevil, daredevil Doolittle kind of thing. Like I have, he saw something, ever... saw something, and just had to do it kind of thing. So, have you ever seen? Uh, have you ever read any DC comics? Um, a few, yeah. Uh, who was the uh, Green Lantern, the white guy, the white one? Uh, like like what was that what, what was his name hold on uh, oh, uh ryan reynolds <laughs> yeah yeah ryan reynolds played him <laughs> okay uh, in uh pearl harbor uh no basically he was that guy he was a test pilot oh. who flew by the seat of his pants and i, I have some feeling that at least this character was ba- uh, Hal Jordan. That's it. I I have some feeling Hal that Hal Jordan. Jordan was based off of Doolittle. I can't prove it. Okay. But once I start telling you the things this guy has done, so during World War One, uh, Doolittle joins uh, the Army and the Army Air Corps, learns to fly, joins the Signal Corps, and uh, teaches people how to fly, all within the period of World War One. Jesus. Uh, he never sees the front lines because he's back at home teaching and learning at the same time, more or less. And so, <laughs> after the war, Doolittle uh, stays in the army and uh, basically tells him, hey, look, I want to go to college and learn about airplanes and avionics and whatnot. And so the army goes, okay, we'll give you two years to go get your master's. He, so he goes to Berkeley, uh, sorry, um, um, uh, MIT, and Jesus. gets his master's in avi- uh, aeronautics in one year. Oh my god. And then, because he still had an extra year, he said, fuck it, I might as well go ahead and uh, get my uh, doctorate. So he went in... Uh, he went. He went to MIT in 1923, and left in 25 with a doctorate in aeronautics, the first one ever issued in uh, the United States. Oh my God, man! He was a pioneer of the flying industry. Yeah, no uh, in, ni- in 1931, he won the first Bendix Trophy, which was a race from uh, California to Cleveland. He won it flat oh out. God. He, and he, then, he flew it in a 12 parsecs, right? Yeah, more or less. And in 19... <laughs> uh, one year later, he uh, set the high-speed record for land planes at 269... Uh, sorry, 296 miles an hour. Jesus Christ. So the guy, like, his plane is just an extension of his body. Like, the, the guy knows planes like the back of his hand. Oh, I'm not even done yet. Oh he God. pioneered instrumental flying, which basically means he, while he was, during his time as a pilot, he realized that uh, G-forces and everything messes with, um, messes with your perception. And okay. So he started, uh, he, uh, his master's dissertation and part of his doctorate stuff was talking about how to fly with instruments only. So... Uh, let's say you blacked out your window 
and you're flying, he could fly the plane just by looking at the instruments that he had. Jesus. He pioneered that and then started teaching that to pilots during World War II to help them fly in night and fog and rain and the whole nine yards. Oh, my God. Just literally flying based off of, like... Controls. Yeah, like yeah. controls yeah. And, and your own orientation. Holy shit. He basically said, don't trust your senses. Trust. Uh, don't trust yourself. Trust the controls. Damn. Good Lord, man. That's some and so, shit. and so they hire him on and say, "Hey, look, we want you to plan the mission and train our pilots to do this." Doolittle said, "Okay, I'll do it." And then, about three months into the whole ordeal, he walks into his um, superior officer and goes, "I want to lead the mission." Oh wow! So, no longer just planning and training, he wants to be. The first man off the boat in the plane. Jesus. And his boss, trying to not sound like the asshole, goes, hey, look, go talk to your other superior. If he says yes, you're good. Go and ask Doodle, mom. Basically. <laughs> and so Doodle s- smells something. He's like, I, I better sprint to this guy's office. As yeah, soon as he, sho- as soon as he shuts the door... He makes a beeline for the other superior officer. He gets in there and goes, hey, can I lead the mission? Uh, other guy said, if you say yes, I can. The guy's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I don't care. And then and the phone rings. Yes. <laughs> not even joking. As Doolittle is shutting the door, he get, the gentleman picks up his phone and goes, what about Doolittle? Oh, uh, well, too late for that. I've already given permission. He's just, he just walked out of here. Yeah, it, it's, that's what happened. So he has he has the land speed record on plane, and he has the fastest run from like the tip of an uh, an aircraft carrier to the other side in like point three seconds. Yeah, that's how fast Damn. he was sprinting. To the I mean, yeah, side the dude. The man won. The man was determined to say the least. So once planning is underway, uh. They have three main things to look at. First off, where are they going to hit Japan? Mm-hmm. Where are they going to land? And what plane are they going to use? And so the first thing they start doing is looking at planes. And this is all happening in about a span of three months. This is not some sure you know this isn't like a year later this is about yeah. three months after the whole thing starts and i mean like which sounds like a long time but when it comes to all of the logistics of everything that's going on to find somebody that can lead a crew to get that crew together to figure out how the fuck you're gonna land on an aircraft carrier what planes you use three months is not a lot of time to plan all that shit. and to train them basically he's yeah. doodles like <laughs> he looked at his guys and said okay yeah we'll do this it's gonna be fun <laughs> and so they start looking at uh, army bombers so army bombers are different from naval bombers naval bombers they have wings that can fold up um they're shorter range so they're the distance they can fly is shorter and the bomb load they carry is smaller because they aren't designed to yeah fly <laughs> 2,000 miles uh, for whatever reason. Land, more or less. Exactly, they yeah. Don't, they don't have anywhere they can touch down. And so um, they so they go, okay, none of the naval bombers will work. What bombers can we use? And so they narrowed it down to four. Um, the first one, as you said earlier, and you guessed correctly, was the B-52 Mitchell, uh, a brand-new bomber that had not been tested in military combat yet. Okay. Uh, the B-26 Marauder, which was a bigger plane with a much wider wingspan. Uh, the B-18 Bolo and the B-23 Dragon. And basically it was a close race, but the Mitchell won out because it was small. It, um, okay. The wingspan was much smaller than any of the other planes. And basically they're like, this gives us more planes on the boat. Because of that smaller wingspan, we can fit more bombers on this aircraft carrier so we can bomb the shit out of Japan even more. Yeah, so that they, they ensure the 
the the dick measuring is concise exactly like they go we're not measuring in centimeters or millimeters we're taking it to a 64th of an inch we are measuring it in inches imperial 64th inch (laughs) like this is we're we're getting technical with this dick measuring contest (laughs) we're measuring in imperial units because that's the only one that made it to the moon and so oh um, jesus and so they start uh they they start figuring out where they're going to get these bombers from they're not just going to build whole new bombers for this whole solely this mission alone and so they go and they decide on the 17th bomber group which had experience with the eighth air corps um which the eighth, the uh, fly, the mighty eighth, ha- could have its own video, this its own <laughs> podcast, its own movie, Jesus. because it was more dangerous to be on the a bomber with the eighth than it was anywhere else. Oh, the really? eighth had the most high highest casualty rates out of the anyone in the war. Jesus, just because of like the maneuvering and everything they had to do or um because the... they did uh they did bold face day bombings in oh, Germany. Oh. Okay. Jesus. And this wasn't even when Germany was weak. This is when their air their uh Luftwaffe was at its prime. God damn. So um, a lot of stupid shit happened with the eighth and maybe we'll do a video on them one day. Yeah. Um and so they they don't re- they don't pull people out uh they recruit they ask for volunteers and uh they end up getting 20 bombers uh and they heavily modify them uh they remove the lower gun turret they installed de-icers to help prevent um freezing while flying um, they reinforced hull plating in very specific locations they removed the radio because it was too heavy. God damn. They're just going bare bones, high armor. Um, they added three additional fuel tanks uh, that were in the bomb bay, uh, the crawlway space, and it replaced two of the turrets. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> they uh, basically they increased their fuel capacity from 600 and uh, about 650 gallons to over um 1100 gallons holy shit yeah oh i doubled God. it yeah um and <laughs> realizing Christ. realizing that they just basically stripped all of the guns off of this plane they added two fake gun barrels at the tail of the gun uh, and hope that oh if they get caught by Japanese airplanes, the Japanese might get a little scared of two little metal tubes sticking out the back end. <laughs> and then... So there was no use for the guns out the back end? It was just, it, like, barrels that are pointed out? It, it was literally a scare tactic. They're like, hopefully the Japanese will see the barrel and go, hmm, I don't want to get on the Fuck. back end of this thing. Uh, uh, basically... Um, yeah, just don't, don't tail these guys, because... They're gonna yeah. be nothing but trouble. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it, you know it's like inflicting yourself up to scare off other animals <laughs> when in actuality you're not gonna do anything. Just make yourself look oh, tastier. I love it. That's fantastic. And so, and then the last thing which I find infinitely funnier is that uh, instead of because basically everyone thought this was going to be a suicide mission, mm-hmm. you're flying into. I mean, unreasonably deep into enemy territory, dropping bombs on mainland Japan. They're like, we're going to get shot out of the sky either before or after we drop the bombs. Yeah. And so they replaced their high-tech bomb sites for these really cheap sites that cost them 20 cents. They called them Mark Twain's. <laughs> Uh, and partially it was because they're like, well, you're not really, we're not bombing for accuracy here. We're just, yeah. like I said, this is just a giant middle finger. And so they're like, okay, just throw them in there. They'll work. And um, to them, you know, it did. And so as all, you know, as they're doing this, uh, doing these modifications to the bombers and everything, uh, Doolittle is trying to figure out where they're going to land. Because 
they've run some calculations and they realize they can't land on the aircraft carriers. The uh, they don't have it's the the airport uh, the the top of the carrier is yeah, too short. It's too it's small. It's not nearly long enough for what what they need. Yeah, that's what my girlfriend says too. <laughs> Bada bing. Bada boom. And so um, they originally said, okay, we'll just land in uh, the USSR in uh, Vladivostok. Um, it was a coastal country. It was a coastal city uh, bordering Japan and China. And so they started talks with the USSR and saying, hey, we want to do this. And if you let us land there, we'll let you keep the bombers. Okay. You give us back the crew. You get y'all can keep the bombers to use against the uh, the Germans. Okay, uh, I, I mean, it, if it works, it works. <laughs> you well, can't, see, you can't it, hate it. it it was it was going good for the first I'd say about thirty minutes of the conversation, until they realized that the Russians had signed a basically a non-aggression pact. Uh, basically. Russia's like, hey, look, we really don't want to get in a fight with you right now, so we won't fuck with you as long as you don't fuck with us. It wasn't anything special, yeah. so it was fragile. And so okay. they didn't want to do anything that would piss off the Japanese to get them to start a war with them as well. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, they're so much closer, and, and they, so... they know how balls to the wall the Japanese were willing to go just yeah, after yeah. seeing fucking Pearl Harbor... Like well, after seeing what ago. they did, at, well, at, also what they've been seeing, uh, what the Japanese have been doing to the Chinese. I mean, the uh, rape of yeah. King happened in 38 and 39. Very true. And so the Russians were like, look, we don't want to have to fuck with you just yet, so we, oh, we're we not going to help out the Americans. Yeah. And so Doolittle, basically going, fuck, had to go to, we had, so they had to land in China. Uh-huh. They hoped that they would actually be able to reach uh, areas of China that were not under the control of Japan, but he wasn't sure. Yeah, hard, hard to do at the time because of how how much area they've covered. Oh, yeah, I mean, and so Doolittle start, start, he doesn't freak out about it. He's like, oh, well, you know, that's just what it is, what it is. Mm-hmm. And so this is where... They, at the end of the day, they have a total of 16 planes that they're going to take off of an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Ten of them, which is over half of them, are going to bomb Tokyo. Oh, damn. Two of them are going to uh, bomb uh, Yoku, uh, Yokoyami. Uh, then one of them is going to bomb Yokosuke. Uh, one's going to bomb Nagoya. One's going to bomb uh, Kobe. Uh, and then one's going to bomb Nagoya. Oh, wow. Okay. They target military installations, manufacturing hubs, and um, uh, weapons depots. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, so uh, basically Doodle and his team are like, hey, don't target civilian targets. We're just here to fuck up their military yeah. uh, inf- stuff, uh, infrastructure. Give them a bloody nose to show them how it feels, almost. Yeah. And so, they were each given uh, several specialty 500-pound bombs that were high explosive. Um, then they, the real surprise that they had in store, was an incendiary bomb. It was a, it was, it was a cluster bomb. So basically, oh. it was a giant cylinder that, when dropped, uh, at a certain altitude, who would pop open dispersing a bunch of smaller uh i'm going to assume white phosphorus explosives Jesus Christ. and um basically this would be a prelude to f- uh, what uh, the firebombing that america would do to japan because uh, t- uh japan's infrastructure was basically wood and paper houses yeah god and damn. so they're like their factories are going to be made of brick, but if we can start a fire around it or something, yeah. uh, their military installations, they're not going to be brick. They're going to be, um, you know, wood and paper. So incendiary, great choice uh, in their minds. God damn. And so on, uh, on 
April, the USS Hornet, an aircraft carrier, leaves California uh, with a very small escort dubbed Task Force 18, and they sail up to sea. Uh, the Japanese, they have their spies, and they catch wind of it, but they don't really think much about it because, you know, it's just, they're just transporting military, you know, they're just transporting airplanes. You know, no one's dumb enough to yeah. take a bomber off off of a... Uh... Nobody could be that stupid, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, as they're sailing, they meet up with the USS Enterprise, dubbed Task Force 16. And at this point, uh, when they meet up, they have a total of 16 ships, only two of which are oilers, which are basically traveling gas tanks. Mm -hmm. And they sail off in complete and utter radio silence. Oh, wow. Um, and they they had two aircraft carriers, the Hornet and the Enterprise, which were sister ships. Same design and everything, just different names. Three heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, eight destroyers, and like I said earlier, two, two fleet oilers. If that, if that fleet, or if that task force was spotted and engaged, um, only, in, only the Enterprise could have launched their fighters because the entire top deck of the Hornet was covered in these 16 bombers. Okay. So, basically, if the Japanese at any point notice them... <laughs> they're fucked. They're fucked. Yeah. And then there goes all, or if not, sorry, the majority of our remaining Pacific fleet, and there goes two of our carriers. Yeah, and I mean... Which would like cripple us. planning and work, too. If if we if you know if they got caught or if they got sunk, um, the war would have been much longer for us, much harder. Um, I don't. I think we had still won, but our death toll would have been far worse. Yeah, I I would assume Japan wouldn't have had nearly, I mean, as rough a time as they did after all of this. Yeah, and so, you know. On on the seventeenth of April, the two Oilers refuel the uh, task force one last time and then nope it the fuck out because they're already a uh, couple hundred miles inside Japanese territory. Damn. So everyone is high strung to the extreme. They have watchmen around the clock they have someone glued to their radar and sonar 24 7 looking out for any scout vessels or any um, submarines that might be out there and uh, no kidding the next morning the enterprise and the hornet pick up something on their radar uh -oh. um within about an hour around eight o'clock uh, it comes into visual range. It's a little wooden fishing boat that has the American flag, sorry, not American, the Japanese uh, rising sun flying. Oh, God. And, oh, no. <laughs> and so one of the destroyers, I think it was the USS Nashville, basically just opens up on this oh, converted fuck. fishing boat. God damn. Um, Instantly crippling it. Uh, the captain of the vessel uh, commits a seppuku, and they only get five sailors, I think, out of the crew. Jesus. Uh, five or three, something like that. But it was too late. Uh, the crew, the Japanese crew, had sent a message saying they had spotted a American convoy. Uh-oh. And so, ten hours early... And over 600, uh, over, yeah, sorry, over 300 miles shy, 
or sorry, I was about 200, sorry, 200 miles shy of their original takeoff time and point. Uh, Doolittle basically looks to the captain of the Hornet and says, we're fucking going. I don't yeah. care. It's now if, or never. Yeah. Yeah. It's now or never. I don't care if we crash before anything happens. We need to go or this entire battle group's fucked. Yeah. And so Doolittle, as the badass he was, is the first one to take off. So over the last couple months, they had been training. The problem was is they had never actually taken off of an aircraft carrier before. Oh, God. They had done it on an airstrip. They had painted out the lines of of an aircraft carrier and said, okay, take off from there. Jesus. Um... So everyone's basically holding their breath as like, if the first plane don't make it, they're fucked. Yeah. Well, maybe not because the first plane only had about two thirds of the runway to take off of because the other planes were on the rest of the airstrip. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) The first guy's just like, well shit, I guess. It was Doolittle. It It was Doolittle. He said, you know, if... Like that daredevil attitude. He said, fuck it, I'm going to punch it first. Imagine being the second ship, though. The first ship, you're like, okay, Doolittle's got this. You're the second one. You still got basically the same amount of length Doolittle has, but you've got to be able to fly at the level he can fly. You're (laughs) like, Jesus Christ. And so. Here goes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so uh, basically the Hornet turns into the wind. Uh, puts the ship into full speed, basically trying to get the plane already up to speed before it's even taken off. And in choppy waters, Doolittle takes off, but barely. Yeah, just but after the that, like drives off the edge, dips down. Nobody hears a splash, and then all of a sudden he just flies. Exactly. Yeah, it's... it was almost movie-esque, but a little less anticlimactic because they do oh, actually. I. I'd say it was more climactic because they you actually didn't know if it, if the plane would take off. Yeah, right. If you're in the theaters, you sort of know what's going to happen. Yeah, these are you'd be watching an American propaganda film. You're like, okay, yeah, they're definitely going to make it. That would be the and real so, twist in a movie theater. You're exactly, sitting there, so, all the planes fall into the water, and it just says, <laughs> no one survived trying to get off of this aircraft carrier at the end. What the fuck? This is fuck? the real wars of war. How is this only a 30-minute movie? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, they get off, and uh, surprisingly, they get all 16 bombers off the Hornet in under an hour. Oh, my God. So they, they, one after the other, they are off. Jesus. And so they, they, they fly, and they, uh, they didn't realize this. Well, they, they knew this at the time, but they were never positive about it. Was that, um, the Japanese didn't have a radar system. They had basically spotters. That little vessel they had saw was one of them. They oh, had hundreds shit. of these ships spotting and calling back, and that was their early warning system. Oh, my God. And uh, like I said earlier, you know, the Japanese, you know, they said they were, you know, they couldn't get hit, but they expected the Americans to, you know, think of it, but they didn't think they would be that far away from the mainland when they took off. Yeah. They expected them to be within... 150 miles of the mainland and so as they're as these bombers make it onto the uh you know mainland japan they get real low as low as physically possible and they just fly they're basically flying over buildings and whatnot jesus christ uh yeah they're buzzing they're buzzing entire neighborhoods and cities as they fly god damn dude and so, as they're going, all the planes break off to their targets, and about ten minutes before they reach um, the airfield, uh, reach their areas, they book it upwards to get to prime bombing height. Yeah. And um, at this point, flak starts firing, and for those who don't know what flak is, it's basically. Uh, a big cannon that they shoot upwards and at a certain altitude the shell explodes and it's designed to take out planes 
Um, they're also called pom-pom guns and whole nine yards. And so the Japanese opened fire, but of course no one was really expecting an attack. So there's not a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean... And... Plus, they had stayed under, um... Uh, what radar. did you call it? Yeah, they they had stayed under that. They weren't really, one, expecting it. They did it from so fucking far out in the ocean. And so, you know... Oh, damn. <laughs> um, there was a story that apparently one of the, um... Crewmen on Doodle's plane was seeing the flak pop around them. And Doodle was like, oh, this is another day in work. And he's like, they're, they're missing by a mile. Oh, and as soon as they said that, a flak goes off about right off of one of the sides. Doesn't do any damage to him. And the dude's like, you call that a mile? And Doodle was like, eh. And just keeps flying. He just goes, Not, I meant, unfazed. He goes, I meant a quarter of a mile, but fuck, we're fine. Exactly. And so... um. Beyond all bullshit expectation, every single plane drops their bombs. Damn. All 16 all 16 hit their targets. Either hit their targets or got damn close. Damn. Um, so, you know, um, there's reports talking about how they looked out the side of their planes and they saw fires or explosions coming from factories. And... Um, none of the planes got shot down. Only yeah. one or two of the planes were attacked by fighters, but they were able to, you know, get away. Good Lord. Um, only one plane got slightly damaged, and that was because it got hit by flak, and it only did superficial. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just a little bit of scrape on the paint, no biggie. And so... Uh, in total, they dropped about 14 tons of explosives. Holy shit. You, you say that, but um, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a calculation. For every one ton of explosives dropped in the war, uh, it killed about one person. Oh, damn. That's just because of the giant unimaginable volume we dropped. And, you know, everyone dropped. But we ended up doing negligible damage i mean superficial yeah um uh the only real damage of interest that we did was to a support vessel uh that the japanese had built in the 30s that was being converted into a light aircraft carrier called the ryuo uh the uh, sorry ryuo <laughs> I'm I'm not Japanese. I do not speak no, the no. language. You're good. This I, is the just... this is the Russian video all over again. You're good. It's just funny to me. It's like the one thing that that the Americans really managed to destroy was a historical art project that was taking place in the well, water. So <laughs> <laughs> I can you know what you know, you're not really wrong, but basically the the Ryuo originally was basically a submarine support vessel. Okay. And they had designed it in such a way that it could be converted to an aircraft carrier if needed. And it was in the dry docks under its uh, being converted at the time. And it was almost done, too. It was almost done. It was so close. One guy that had dedicated, like, hours on it. He's worked fucking 60 hours overtime every week. He's like, don't worry, honey. This is the last week I'll have to work on it. He goes home Friday night, wakes up Saturday morning, and they're like, yeah, it got bombed last night. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? And it was one bomb. (laughs) And it hit it in the worst place possible. (laughs) It was one of the 500-pounders, and it landed on the starboard deck. Oh, God. So the ship could sail. You know, the superstructure was fine. Uh But no planes at all could take off defeating the purpose whatsoever completely destroys its use 
it, it, oh it's like the, it's like this old like uh three stooges episodes where you know you got this man going oh, i finally finished my masterpiece and then someone comes over and just breaks it as they're <laughs> making a mad dash because the Ryu wasn't even a target oh my god I it was just that. they saw it and like there we go that's what we need <laughs> um, that's fantastic and so and like the weird you really thing... couldn't write it up any better like the the only thing is oh yeah we were painting this large Japanese mural in the middle of the street of our our dear emperor and the only bomb that connected was right in the middle of his fucking face <laughs> like, um, God damn it. you know you know, a bunch of these J- Japanese aircraft carriers had a big old red dot painted on the uh, flight deck. Slide that know, shit up. Damn. It's just asking for trouble. And I mean, it would be like if anybody tried to bomb the U.S. now. It's like, just aim for the literal target superstores. Like, exactly. <laughs> no, no, that's basically what it was. And so... Um, here's a quote by Doolittle about the raid. Uh, the, Jap- the Japanese people have been told that they were invulnerable. An attack on the Japanese homeland would cause uh, would cause confusion in their mind. Uh, would would cause confusion in the minds of the Japanese people, and sour the doubt about the reliability of their leaders. There was a second and equally important psychological reason for this attack. The Americans badly needed a win. Yeah. And, you know, through that, they did. The problem is, is the way Japan was at the time, uh, casualty numbers are really hard to figure out. Yeah. Uh, I've seen numbers as low as uh, in the 50s. And I've seen, um, like, uh, hold on, I got the perfect... So the Japanese, you know, are like, oh, yeah, um, so, you know, like I said, some numbers said in the 50s, some said in the hundreds. Um, from the Hornets, the aircraft carrier, the USS Hornets, uh, battle logs, as they were sailing away from the attack, um, they, re- they intercepted uh, radio uh, broadcasts from Tokyo, and um, this is what it's roughly translated to: um, a large fleet of enemy bombers appeared over Tokyo this afternoon and caused much damage to non-military objectives and some damage to factories. No death toll is between three and four thousand so far. Jesus. No planes were reportedly down, uh, re- reported shot down over Tokyo. Osaka was also bombed. Tokyo was reported several large fires burning. Uh, 1500, uh, 1500 uh, charged speed, oh, and and then it goes on to talking about you know the ship's uh, nautical speed and uh, basically when they got that message they increased their speed to get the fuck out of there. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so the Japanese made it sound like we were bombing civilian targets. Yeah. Instead of which we, going after military bases, they're like, oh, they just say it. Uh, which we didn't. Yeah. Now, I am I am a realist. I will fully admit that we most definitely hit some civilians and those incendiary bombs most definitely lit uh, a couple of neighborhoods on fire. But yeah. Uh, the, here you can see the Japanese were blatantly Just, propagandizing, yeah. basically saying, look at these monsters. And we see the effect that that type of propaganda had on the Japanese people years later when we start freeing islands and civilians fling themselves off of cliffs because they, they think the American oh, military is going to... Uh, rape and eat them essentially yeah that they're they're just going to commit these atrocities against civilians because that's all they've really heard about exactly and this i feel like is just a, a really good example of you know what happened uh, what what would uh, go on and so after the mission so after the bombing uh the bombers 
basically nope the fuck out and yeah. uh they wouldn't have even made it to the chinese the east chinese sea if it wasn't for a tailwind that picked up oh, and wow. basically carried them for about seven hours jesus and that tailwind uh, increased their flight speed by about 25 nautical miles an hour mm-hmm. so it gave them just enough push to um, make it uh into the uh chinese sea and and or to make it into the chinese mainland proper yeah to make up so the 200 miles that they had to take off yeah. really. so out of the 16 planes how many do you think america got back um i would say 16 made it back none of the planes made it back oh oh fuck <laughs> um but only three men died oh damn so what ended up happening was is all the pilots bailed out uh, all the crews oh. bailed their planes or crash landed them either in the china and the china sea or on china mainland just dumped them except for one plane um hold on let me uh, my guess is it's doolittles he no actually doolittle oh. uh doolittle they, they bailed out over uh, uh east china oh okay i was thinking that he was like the only one that somehow managed to make it all work <laughs> no no um no uh the only plane that actually successfully sort of landed it's actually i, I couldn't really find out if it made a proper landing with a crash land landed was captain by uh was captain by edward york and uh they flew it out they flew out to vladivostok because they had engine trouble and they were like we won't be able to make it to china and so they flew out to russia um so when they landed instantly arrested Instantly arrested and then turned because the Russians are like, hey, look, we told you not to land here. We told you not, you know, you're, you're going to get turned. Yeah. And Shit. <laughs> here's the funny part, though. So over the next year, they're bounced around about six different prison camps. And then they, quote unquote, escape into British held Iran. Oh, Okay. Basically, years later, it comes out that the MVKD, uh, which was the precursor to the KGB, um, staged their escape. Oh, okay. They wanted to get. They wanted to. Ha- they they wanted to stay friends with America and her allies, ah. while also staying in the good graces of the of the Japanese. And so they basically like. Oh, well, look at this. I got a really cool book. I'm just going to sit here and read it for four hours. So is everyone else in this prison camp. <laughs> We're all oh, in and the door And the, the front door's unlocked. Just, you know, be good be good chaps and We, we don't... trust these prisoners. Yeah. Well, we let them go out on vacation every other week. Damn, that's crazy. They're, they've been so good. Um, the rest of the planes, though, crashed in China or the China Sea. And... Sadly, 11 crewmen were captured. Well, sorry, 11 crewmen didn't make it back to America right off the bat. Uh, Two crewmen died in... Oh, sorry, three crewmen died in a crash. They drowned. Um, Then the other eight men were captured by the Chinese military. Sorry, the Japanese military. Uh, these men were brought to Shanghai where they stood trial for war crimes such as strafing civilian targets and endangering the emperor. Jesus. Uh, they would stay in prison camp for about a week. Oh. Uh, several uh, they were beaten and starved and then one day three of them were told to stand up they walked outside got in a car drove to a cemetery and then summarily executed via firing line damn dude 
the other five would be held in captivity, starved, beaten, and mistreated for the rest of the war until they were saved by Americans in the 1945. Jesus, that's crazy, though. Like, no, I'm not done yet, though, because when Doolittle crashed, he ended up landing in a rice field. He was the last one to jump out of the plane. He basically... Um, he dumped his fuel. He uh, whatever minuscule amount of gas he had left, he dumped it. He destroyed any papers that he had, and then set the plane to autopilot. And then, uh, as he said, left the plane. Uh, he landed in a, uh, a rice field that had been freshly covered in night dirt, uh, which is a very nice way of saying human shit. <laughs> God. And he was about waist deep in it. Ah, uh, fuck. And so he he gets out, and it's about pitch black out. And he goes wandering around. He ends up finding uh, a box. And he gets in it. Turns out it's a coffin. And he spends the night uh, with a dead body. Oh God. Next morning, he wakes up, starts looking around, and two very jumpy Chinese military find him, and they think he's a Japanese spy. Uh, It isn't... uh, He's admonished in about six hours when they find his parachute, and they realize, oh shit, this guy is an American. And they help him get to um, friendly, uh, like, uh, free China. Um, Along... um, And... Every single other American pilot, uh, uh, airman does this all along the way to show their appreciation to the Chinese people who risk their lives hiding them, feeding them, and guiding them. Uh, um, many of these pilots and airmen would give trinkets to these Chinese um, freedom fighters and civilians, okay. yeah. be it cigarettes, a jacket. A, hand, a handkerchief, anything. Yeah, just to show any amount of appreciation. Damn. And they didn't realize how the Japanese would respond. Oh, fuck. Um, in a period of three months, in an effort to capture Doolittle's crew, the Japanese killed 250,000 civilians. Oh, my God. Just people they suspected worked with anyone who remotely helped them supported them and who were in their way damn uh in the beginning of this absolute um i'd just call it a shit show uh several american uh preachers who were part of missionaries in china um wrote down in their diaries the things they saw the Japanese soldiers do and a lot of people compare this to the rape of Nanking on the level of brutality Jesus Christ Uh, this was a diary entry from a Japanese from a American uh, clergyman and it stated they shot any man woman or child cow dog or just about anything that moved they raped any woman from the age of 10 to 65, and before burning the town, they thoroughly looted it. Jesus. Um, that's not even the worst things that they did. So uh, there was a couple of cities that they ended up just ri- uh, raising to the ground. Um, another entry by these pastors basically said there were drunk Japanese military walking around only in their uh, loincloths because Japanese soldiers didn't wear underwear. They wore these little wraps. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if they found a Japanese woman, they'd just end up raping her. Jesus. And um, they would set civilians civilians on fire. Um they would rape uh, women and children in front of their parents. Uh, the Japanese had a penchant for rape. Good Lord. I mean... And I mean, you really can't blame Russia for not wanting to fuck with the I, yeah, Japanese. No, yeah, no, no, no. Um, like I said, a, a fucking 
penchant for it. Um, they had a thing called the Bullet Game. Uh, they would line up ten Chinese men and shoot, uh, and it was to see how many how many people the bullet would go through before it oh stopped. My God. Um, this went on for about three or four months, and like I said, by the end of it, over two hundred fifty thousand people were dead. Jesus Christ. Um. When Doolittle got back uh, from the raid, he didn't realize—he thought it was a failure. He thought that he—the uh, only thing he— Like, he got back to some place that had an American communication center, basically said, mission complete, bombs dropped, all 16 planes lost. Um, and he thought—he goes, I'm going to be disgraced when I get back. I mean, he, he truly thought he had failed. Yeah. Which was the exact opposite. Basically, the next day, headlines said, America bombed the shit out of Japan. Um, our dicks is the biggest in the world. And at this point, you know, I wouldn't blame them. Because yeah, they pulled off the impossible at the risk of total military loss in yeah, the Pacific. Absolutely. And they were, like I said, there was no way to predict that... the the jet the japanese would have that type of response yeah it, i mean it's um, it's true i mean and um so the effects of the doodle raid were quite literally almost instant um basically as soon as that happened uh yamato had warned the japanese military and government and hey look we're the mainland's not safe. America is going to be out for blood, and they're going to try to do it in the most spectacular way possible. We need to sh- we need to shore up our security at home, and no one no one really believed them, or at least no one wanted to listen to them because the Japanese uh, military structure was cut through. It was, um, I mean, the Japanese military was absolutely cut throat in the terms of like generals like people would literally backstab each other and go uh, go against others orders because they thought it would bring them bigger honor or get them the promotion damn uh, yeah that was crazy and so um it took hundreds and thousands of soldiers away from the front lines into the japanese homeland setting up anti-air guns better defenses uh they moved entire air divisions to japan to make sure that this shit wouldn't happen again and the second thing that happened was that the japanese realized that we absolutely they absolutely needed to take care of our aircraft carriers which sped up their uh, timetables which set the stage for midway where America would eventually wipe the floor with them and completely turn the tides of the war. Yeah. And so, like I said at the very beginning, the Doolittle Raid, while it's known, it's not... It's famous within certain communities. Mm -hmm. It isn't known by the general public, and especially not some of the finer details. Yeah, really, though. And... Um, as just one little last thing, because I just think it's hilarious. Bombers have nicknames sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, they'll be they'll paint it on the nose of the plane and everything. And some of these, uh, not all the bombers are named, but a good number of these were. And let me just read out a couple of the names of them. Uh, Whirling Devilish. Fickle Finger Fate, The Avenger, TNT, Bat Out of Hell, and uh, my favorite for no reason, just because it's hilarious, uh, Ruptured Duck. <laughs> sounds, I mean, that, Ruptured Duck sounds like a and really it, good And it was, um, and the nose art was Donald Duck's uh, head with, uh, and his neck with a bandage on it and then two uh, crutches and an X formation around it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, some of the nose art, I, one of my favorite things is nose art because it's just so stupid and so great. That's fantastic. I love it. Ruptured duck. Ruptured duck. 
too good. That's, that's, that's going to be my porn name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't blame you. Uh, so, I mean, anybody looking to see Bears, Bears Dick after we've talked about dick measuring <laughs> contests, uh, search at Ruptured Duck on Pornhub. And I guarantee this is this is a D guarantee you will see Bear's penis. So uh, <laughs> I got you guys. <laughs> I'll go ahead and warn you now. Yeah. It's not impressive. <laughs> not in the slightest. Hey, I mean, it works. It yeah, it does it does its job. <laughs> oh man. Well it was fantastic having you back. Oh it, thank it's you so much, man. So fun to be on here. Uh and Maybe if we can revive AJ after, maybe with some some clever seances, a couple of, uh, like, we'll cross some demons. Hey, hey, I've already paid you. Oh, oh, fuck. Nothing in the deal said we had to revive him. Oh, shit. I'll I'll edit that part out. No, never mind. Uh, So, real quick, um, thank you to everyone on Patreon. Abby, AJ's third nut. Lindo, NSA isn't real. D's nuts, not me. Nordic Thunder, Toddy Waddy Poopy Snotty, Dark Runner, Haley, and Casey McFacey. Appreciate all you guys do. Uh, you, as AJ used to always say, and will never say again, his fi- his famous final words. You guys keep the lights on, and it is appreciated. Um, and I mean. As always, Bear, it is a fucking pleasure having you on, dude. Oh, it, it, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, I love being on this show. It is oh. always some sort of madness I'm going to get in with you guys. You are always welcome back, man. Uh, as usual to everybody else, find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Points O Pressure, and we will catch you guys next week.